Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Welcome to the class on Romans, and today we'll briefly touch on Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, of course, contains the depth of Paul's picture of salvation and requires a detailed look that probably can't be captured in in a single lecture. I guess you could spend the rest of your life reading Romans chapter 8, because here is the picture then of new life in Christ. A key thing here is to set up the contrast. The contrast aids in understanding chapter 8, not simply because salvation is a negation of what's in 7, but partly through the negation, I think we understand the positive thing that takes place. The human subject becomes something quite different, but we really don't capture what that is if we miss what was missing outside of the body of Christ. And so chapter 7 from 7-7 following is located, it's in the individual, the isolated individual, the whole movement. And movement is the right word. It's a verb. It's action. In chapter 8 is being incorporated into the body of Christ. That is, it's a corporate identity. And corporate here in a twofold sense, incorporated into the Trinity, because each person of the Trinity, the Father is Abba, Creator, the Son is the one in whom or through whom we're incorporated into the Trinity by means of the Spirit. Each person of the Trinity plays a role here. And this then has cosmic implications. The creation itself is pictured as awaiting, you know, expecting the sons of God to be revealed. You could just set up an easy contrast that makes for an interesting insight between seven and eight, that seven is about the I, eight is about the corporate person. The Holy Spirit is mentioned some 19 times in chapter eight, completely missing in chapter seven. Chapter seven focuses entirely on the dynamics of the body of death. The categories that Paul uses in chapter 8, I think, throughout, can be contrasted with what's there in chapter 7. Life and peace stand over violence and death. Adoption as children stand over and against a primary relationship to the law. Glory, kind of sometimes an abstract term, but it means incorruptibility in the face of death or the presence of God made completely accessible. That is, glory is this unstoppable presence of God. And that's the way that chapter 8 ends, you know, that nothing shall separate us from the love of God. That's actually captured, I think, in the idea of glory. Seven takes place within the interior parts of the individual. Chapter 8 opens up, we're talking about a cosmic redemption. There's no love in chapter 7. Chapter 8 is filled with, I mean, it is a description of love. You could even do a dynamic difference, you know, that the Father in 8 displaces the law in 7. The Son in 8, being incorporated in the Son, displaces the ego. The Holy Spirit displaces the body of sin, the body of death, or the law of sin and death is displaced by the law of life and the Spirit. So that chapter 7 tells us how the ego or how the I works outside of Christ. 
But we understand part of this working in that what is missing is the Trinity. What is missing is God, and that actually means something. Even such language, you know, chapter 7 has the idea of, uh, of desire. If you had to set up the picture in chapter 7 is visual. The word blepo is there. He's seeing himself as in a, a mirror. But hope is not seen. It's on, the focus is on the unseen. But still there is the, the idea of the being conformed to the image of the sun. The subject is reconstituted in this uh, dynamic. Dynamic may partly be misleading because, in, in a sense, it's a dynamic for death. It's a kind of static thing in Chapter 7. There is a lack of change uh, or even a capacity to change. That's the whole idea in hope. This is Jürgen Moltmann's big book on hope. One of the things he talks about is that the ego as an object, it's a visual object, is not subject to change and therefore is ultimately subsumed by suffering and futility. There's futility, you know, this creation has been subjected to futility, to frustration. Same word as Paul talks about, many connect it to the word he uses in chapter 2. But now this futility, the suffering is not unbearable, it's bearable. And so the body of sin, the body of death, is displaced by the body of Christ. The law of the Spirit displaces the work of the law of sin and death. And law here, of course, we're not talking about the Mosaic law. We're not simply talking about the prohibition in in Eden. But in some sense, it's the law that Paul has just described, the law of sin and death. This then alienates, and what displaces that is this new relationship to God. You know, if you had to identify what the Hebrew misunderstanding of the law was, they thought there was life in the law. So their primary relationship was with the law. The mistake there is to understand, well, life is in God, in the Father, not in the law. And so the cry, Abba, Father, is the idea of a primary relationship to God directly. And so we can say that Paul's question, who will rescue me from this body of death at the end of 724, is now answered. Uh, the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. If you had to say, you know, desire, covetousness is really being described throughout chapter 7. What is that desire? In some way, the self is missing. There's a lack of life, a lack of reality in that one is deceived that you are lacking. That frustrated desire is all-consuming. The image of Christ, then, still, it's not that there's not suffering, but now we suffer in Christ. It's, it's a picture of a corporate suffering. And there's still futility. There is still the fall of man. As he says in 820, this, in this beautiful verse, the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own choice, but through the choice of the one who subjected it in hope. And of course, whose hope is this? This is God's hope, ultimately, that we, we in our hoping, are participating in the very hope of God. And so the end result is that we can say we're ontologically different, that the subject is reconstituted. There is a capacity for empathy, for sharing and suffering, for corporate identity. This displaces this isolated, antagonistic notion of the self. The entire movement might be seen then you know, if we think of the law, and again, the law is not the problem, it is the orientation to the law, that the law is 
presumed to contain life. If you think of this as in psychoanalytic terms, you know that we have this authority in the superego or in the conscience or in our sense of guilt, and that becomes the primary thing about us. But now the the idea is that there's a real relationship to God and that this is part of the, the corporate identity, not to remove that from real relationships with other people and all of that, then there is a movement of, of a shared identity. And we might say that chapter 7 is all about an incapacity of the will, an incapacity to keep the law. And chapter 8 is that now there is this new capacity that we're able to walk as he walked, that we're able to please God, Paul says. He says, formally, we're not able to please God, that we are consumed by this kind of absence of capacity, an absence of, to fulfill, or uh, an absence of intent. In some way, the I marks what is missing. This in the fall of man, that we talked about this in chapter 7, that when the I arises, well, it displaces relationship to God and relationship to others. The I, the trinity of the I, the law, the ego, and then what might be unconscious, the body of death or the principle of the flesh. That defines the subject. The Holy Spirit, the Father, the the Trinity, we see a Trinitarian work here in chapter 8 so clearly that each person of the Trinity is doing work, that the Father is the one who sends the Son, who creates. The Father is the primary one with whom we have relationship, which is interesting because we sometimes imagine that the Son is the, the one with whom we have relationship. But in chapter 8, it's actually through the Son. That is, that we're standing in the place of the Son in relationship to the Father. That the Son, Jesus, is not the object, but the subject into which we're incorporated. And the Spirit, then, is the one that enables this. And so we walk as Christ walked, because Christ himself, then, if we talk in terms of covenant, that he's fulfilled the covenant relationship. He keeps covenant, and so we can too. If we had to characterize chapter 7 in terms of communion or communication, there's a breakdown of communication. It's antagonistic. Chapter 8 is an infinite depth of communication. In a sense, we could almost relate the picture of communion or communication. Some would relate what he's saying here with the groanings too deep for words. Maybe this is a kind of articulation that you get in the gifts of the Spirit of what is unconscious or that we normally can't articulate. In a deception, you can't articulate that because you don't have access to it. That is, there's an inarticulateness to sin because you're cut off from yourself. It's a very different picture here that the communion, the communication, at one point that it's a groaning too deep and the creation's groaning, the Christian's groaning, is pictured as an inter-Trinitarian communion in which the Spirit himself intercedes for us. I think here of Paul's notion that he's continually in prayer, ceaselessly in prayer, or even Christ then in the Garden of Gethsemane at the greatest point of agony goes and is in prayer. Maybe he's not praying anything in particular, but there is this this practicing of the presence of God, the realization pouring oneself out, that we have access to ourselves and are unconscious here in a way that we did not before. It exceeds, you know, this human, prayerful human knowing 
exceeds finite knowledge because it connects us to a truth that we did not. And I think we should think of Christ here as the truth over and against this law. He's not just some abstract philosophical truth, but the one who is the truth for us, the truth for us in relationship to God. There is a knowing of God. There is a depth of communion. It's not just unidirectional. It's not just us in our relationship to God or vice versa, but it's unidirectional. A way that chapter 7 might be described, or the way that Derrida or others describe the, the use of human language, a word from nowhere directed to no one. I think that may get it, the function of language in a psychoanalytic sense. If you understand how you're constituted in and through language, think of here the laws, the symbolic order of language. The ego is in some way standing outside of that, but the longing for the ego as a part of that desire that get given rise in and through the symbolic order. I think that gets at the idea here that of the emptiness of human words. It's literally an emptiness that we experience. This is the death-dealing nature when we say that, that the law of sin and death literally is a kind of alienating word that think of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It just circulates round and round. Without God, we presume to have a relationship, but it's a relationship with the law rather than God. And so communication in the Spirit is a full communion with God in which knowing has its support in being foreknown by God and in which understanding is conformed to the purposes of God. I think there certainly is the sense of a predestination, but this is a cosmic predestination that's being this is a very brief introduction to chapter 8, and next time we'll take up from 9 uh, to 11. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.